couple of days ago, uh, Tim Keller went home to be with the Lord, a marvelous teacher, and uh, he'd uh, written a, uh, an email to John Piper, and he said, uh, you know, done a lot of work, we all do, this, that, and the other, and he says, but here's the thing that matters, and he quoted from Luke 10, he says, the thing that counts is that your name is written in heaven, everything else is interesting. But by comparison, no. You know, so be glad this morning. Sing with joy. Your names are written in heaven. Let's begin. Lord God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the best day of the week. This is the day that you have made. We heard in the prayer this morning. Lord God, we come here today to celebrate you, to declare our love for you to celebrate your faithfulness to us and your love for us. Oh, Lord God, bless this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we've been going through Isaiah for some time now, and uh, it can sound like a broken record. (laughs) Uh, God repeats over and over again, I am God, there is no other. You are my people, but you've rebelled against me and worshipped other gods. I'm going to chastise you by sending your enemies against you, but then I'm going to deliver you and punish your enemies. Isaiah, yep, that's it in a nutshell. Um, but uh, it, it could sound like it, it, it shouldn't, but you know, God doesn't coerce us to love Him under a threat of punishment. You know, it could sound like that. You could read it that way. That's not at all what's going on. Rather, He shows His love for us by giving us a choice. You said to the Israelites when He gave them the law, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, and therefore choose life that both you and your offspring may live. We freely choose to love God who first loved us. How do we know that? Because He sent Christ to die for us. And we show our love for Him through our obedience. We show our love for God through our obedience. It's not at a compulsion. It's not because we gotta. It's because we get to. I think we had a sermon about that. It's because God loves us that He comforts us in the midst of correcting us. If He didn't love us, He wouldn't comfort us in the middle of correcting us. It's a demonstration of His love that He comforts us when He does that. We began our study of Isaiah this year in chapter 40, where God says, comfort, yes, comfort my people. In today's passage, which covers three chapters, will be done by 2.30, 3 o'clock. It covers three passages, uh, three chapters. God is going to repeat that word comfort over and over again. When God says to comfort us, what does he actually mean by that? Because everybody has a different sense of what they're expecting in the way of being comforted. Kids expect cookies, ice cream. That's comfort. You know, I expect macaroni and cheese. We all have our sense of what comfort is. um, But when God says comfort us, he means this. He says, remind my people. I'm speaking on God's behalf. Remind my people how much I love them and that I'll never leave or forsake them. Even in their sin, even in my anger, I will not leave them or forsake them. That's the comfort that we have from God. Our deliverance will surely come. That's the promise we have in Christ. But where is our comfort as we're suffering? That's often the question we ask. I know there's an afterlife and I know, you know everything's going to be swell then, you know, but between now and then, what have I got? in the way of comfort. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. We'll put this up on the board for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, in the same way that Christ was comforted in His sufferings, we are comforted in our sufferings because we are united to Christ. Paul is telling us that comfort comes from God, through His people, to other people. We are the means, we here this morning, are the means of God's comfort to God's people. That's a role that we play. That's a command we obey. That's a privilege we have. We are witnesses to the comfort of God who has lovingly cared for us through good times and bad. 
We testify of his love to a world that just doesn't know him, nor his son, nor his love. But we know him. We know him. And we've experienced his love. We testify of it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're testifying to. It's not a series of facts and events. It's a testimony about the love of God in Jesus Christ. When God afflicts his people, it's never meant to punish or discourage us. It's meant to correct and to restore us. Isaiah is all about God's correction motivated by God's love. It's intended to draw us near to him so that God himself will be our comfort. Let me repeat that. God himself is our comfort and therefore draw near to him. You're looking for comfort? Draw near to God. Kurt pointed out last week that God saves us for his name's sake. Came up at communion this morning. He's faithful to all his promises for his name's sake. He swears by himself, for there is none greater. He swore to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15. He swore to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Those are promises that God has made. Those promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Past tense. Take comfort in that truth. And take comfort in Christ. He is himself our comfort. Jesus Christ is himself our comfort. He is God with us. That's what it says in Matthew 1.23. He warned us that in this world we're going to have trouble. <laughs> Yay! And yet comfort is not the absence of trouble. Again, careful how you define your comfort. Comfort is not the absence of trouble. Comfort is found in the midst of trouble. That's when we draw near to God. That is when we draw near to God. The word comfort, interesting word, the way that it's used in Hebrew and Greek, it means to sorrow for another person. To sorrow for their sake. We come alongside to console and to restore and to refresh them. That's what God does for us. We identify with them in their sorrow. That's what Christ was doing for us. We're letting them know that they're not alone. You want comfort in the midst of your sorrow because you feel awfully alone when you're suffering. You feel so isolated from everyone else that no one else could possibly understand what it is that you're going through. And in that comfort that we bring to them, we're saying you're not alone in this. I'm going to sit here with you for a while. I'm not going to preach at you. I'm not going to give you cute little phrases. I'm going to be here with you and suffer with you. I'm doing that for your sake because I love you. That's Christ for us. That's God for us. Israel is about to be sorely troubled. <laughs> but God promises that he himself will come alongside to comfort and to restore them. The Messiah, God incarnate, will surely come to them. That's this promise that we're reading about in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 49 begins with a statement that Israel has been called by God to be a light and to be a witness to the nations. Well, guess what? We too are called by God to be a light and a witness to the nations. To show them the way of Christ. That's part of the reason why we're gathered here this morning. Is to learn what that is. So that when we proclaim it, we proclaim it accurately and truly, passionately and with conviction. As I read the text from Isaiah, it's going to be a seesaw. We're going to go back and forth between Isaiah and the New Testament. I'm going to give you a related passage in the New Testament. There's a continuity, if you didn't know, there's a continuity between the two Testaments. If you didn't know, we, we believe that Scripture should be interpreted Christ-centric, with Christ at the center. From Genesis to Revelation, Christ is at the center of it all. There's one tapestry, one picture of Christ, a single covenant of grace unites them both. Imagine the apostles after the resurrection, and they're going to the temple. Nobody could afford to have a scroll by themselves, but they knew somebody. Nicodemus was there, and you know, I imagine, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but I imagine Nicodemus said, hey, <laughs> I got a scroll for you guys. You want to read that upstairs? You know, and he took them into that upper room, and he opened up the scroll for them, and the scroll was Isaiah. And imagine them opening that scroll of Isaiah and seeing and reading there all about Jesus Christ, who they knew, who they experienced, who they loved, and whose love they understood and received. Imagine what that must have been like for them. I'm going to try to give us some sense of that this morning by connecting the Old and New Testaments as we go along. 
He was their comfort. He was their joy. Christ was, and he's ours, isn't he? Isn't that what we sang about this morning? So let's begin. Isaiah 49. Do yourself a favor. Don't try to track with me in the New Testament. I'll do that for you. Okay, just keep your finger in the text, and I'll come back to it and back to it and back to it. Christ is clearly portrayed in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 49 as the light of the world. So Israel, Israel shall be a light for the nations. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Revelation one sixteen calls it a two-edged sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In Colossians one twenty six, Paul says that Christ is the mystery hidden, hidden in ages past, but now revealed to his saints. In Matthew three seventeen, God says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is the Son of God, but He's also the Son of Man. He is God incarnate, and He is also Israel incarnate. He is our representative who stands in our place. Verse 3 refers to Christ as a servant. In John 17, 4, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. It's the image of a servant. That's what we're hearing. That's what we're seeing. That's what we understand from that passage. It's the image of a servant. He humbled himself as a servant would humble himself. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Along the bottom of your handouts is five lines of verses that I'll be referring to. That's some of them. (laughs) There are others. I'm sure you recognize them as we go through. Verse 4, but I said, that is Christ said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity meaning it had no effect. It was like inconsequential. And yet surely my right is with the Lord and and my recompense, that is my reward, is with my God. John echoes this saying that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 1.11. As if he had come in vain. And yet in Revelation 22.12 the risen and victorious Savior says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense my reward with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Do you see the tie? Do you see the links? Do you see the connections between Old and New Testament? Phrases repeated over and over and over again, affirming all the things which God has said, having come to fruition in Jesus Christ, made true in Christ, fulfilled in Christ, that God is faithful to his people. He has made no promise, made no statement that he did not fulfill. That is our comfort. That's our joy. And that's our hope. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, meaning the people of God, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, meaning the people of God. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Matthew says, Jesus was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit, Matthew one twenty. Peter says, He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might do what? Bring us to God. What's another way of putting that? That we might be gathered to Him. It's 1 Peter 3.18. Verse 6. It's too light a thing. It's really not much that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of, of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it isn't just the nation of Israel that He'll bring back when He comes. See the promise? This promise is not only for them, but for all those who come after them. For the children and all those who are far off. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, for all the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. He says to his people who are one with him, you are, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14. You can see that the covenant promises of God flow seamlessly from the Old Testament to the New. This is the continuity of the Old and New Testaments. This is the faithfulness and the love of God in keeping all of His promises to His people. Isaiah 49.2 said that Christ is hidden in God's quiver. Interesting image. 
hidden in God's quiver until in the fullness of time God revealed him to us. And so John tells us the Word became flesh. The Word of God, that promise of God, God who is ineffable, God who cannot be touched, God who cannot be seen face to face, all of a sudden was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth, John 1.14. So Isaiah continues, pointing to this promised Messiah in absolutely amazing detail. The Lord has comforted His people. We heard that this morning earlier. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Who has chosen you. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Who is he speaking about? That's Christ. Christ was given as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, come out, like he said to the risen dead man, Lazarus, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways, on bare heights shall be their pasture, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them. By springs of water will guide them. Can you hear Psalm 23? Jesus is himself God's covenant with his people. We have a new covenant in his blood, don't we? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are those same two phrases, these repeated words, these terms over and over again. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why? For they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. Revelation 7, 16, they shall hunger no more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Echo, right? There's the drumbeat in Isaiah. There's the echo in the New Testament. Verse 11, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the, from the land of Syene. Where is that? South of Pueblo. No, it, Syene is uh, actually a quarry. It was very famous at the time. They, uh, they cut all the marble and they cut all the stone from that quarry at Syene. Now this is going to come up in a little bit. He's going to talk about that quarry again. You weren't cut from that quarry. You were cut, you people, you chosen, you of the Lord were chosen from a different quarry than that one. That image is going to come up as I said. As for the highways, recall Jesus' parable. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Luke 14, 23. Jesus tied this verse in Isaiah to that little parable, to the gospel itself. He connected them so that we know that they're linked. Verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people. How did he do that? Through his promise. And he will have compassion on his afflicted. How? Through the one he has promised. Where is this comfort to be found? According to Jesus' parable in Luke, it's to be found in his house. In the house of God is where we find that comfort. That's why we draw near to God. That's where we're going to find it. That's where we seek is in the house of God. And that takes us to the next section in our passage. The Lord has not forgotten you. Verse 14, but Zion, that's where the people of God gather, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. Why would they say that? Because God is bringing them through affliction. Why? To draw them near to himself, but they're not listening. They're paying no attention. Has my God forgotten me? No, he's calling to you. Respond. Turn. In the midst of adversity, our inclination is to think that God has forgotten us or that he doesn't see. He doesn't see what we're going through that he doesn't care, somehow he's indifferent to us. That may be how we feel, but God says, sorry, not true. That is just flat not true. Don't go down that road. 
However, we must focus on the kingdom as Wolf exhorted us to do. That's where our comfort is to be found. We seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. And then all these earthly comforts will find their proper place. Their proper place. It doesn't mean we get everything we're wishing for. It means all of a sudden we gain a sense of perspective that we didn't have before that adversity. Adversity helps to put things in perspective for us. God gives us a vivid picture of a nursing mother here in verse 15 to show us that he will not forget us. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these, these mothers may forget, but I, says God, I won't forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The walls of Jerusalem, the walls of his household, the walls of his kingdom. Our names were written on Christ's hands when he was nailed to the cross. He loved us before we nursed at our mother's breast. He knit us together in the womb, and he chose us before the foundation of the world. For what end? To be his very own, his precious possession. That is our God. That is who we worship. That is who Isaiah is declaring to us in this passage. He is himself our comfort. Look at verse 21. It's a picture of a barren mother now surrounded by her children. A woman who wanted children so badly and had none. Imagine her delight when she hears this, verse 21. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? Where'd these kids come from? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Strange question one of those vaguenesses in scripture you look at that and you go huh huh what so who's he speaking about well israel yes but also about the messiah but also about the messiah the redeemer and savior isaiah 53 next week isaiah 53 refers to this messiah who had no fleshly children it says in isaiah 53:10 yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That makes no sense unless you understand who you are. Who you are. See, this is Christ in whom we live. We are his offspring. We are the offspring of Christ. Christ came to save us from that terrible day of wrath. He paid what we cannot pay. He perfectly obeyed what we cannot obey except imperfectly. He laid down his own life for us that we might have life and have it abundantly. Listen now to the Father's promise to the Son concerning all his offspring. Verse 22, the Lord will deliver you. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. This is uh, setting off a signal like burning a stack of wood on top of a mountain. So others see there's a signal going off from them. I'll raise my signal to the peoples. It's a summoning. That's that signal. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom. And your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. God is summoning all those who are longing for redemption, longing for deliverance, calling them to himself. God says here that on that day when he delivers his people from bondage, he will affirm that their labors and their suffering were not in vain. That's his promise to you here this morning. Whatever you're going through, your labors, your suffering, they're not in vain. Remember what Paul said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he's doing. He's summoning the nations to come and worship at his feet. The day is going to come when even those who will not acknowledge him as the Lord and Savior will bow down. They will call him by his name. They will say, you are the Savior, you are the Redeemer, you are God who was promised from the beginning. They will all confess that on that day. In Revelation it says, His martyred saints cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's from Revelation 6.10. When is that? That's when Christ returns. Verse 23, Then you, meaning the people of God, then you will know that I am the Lord. Because apparently you don't recognize it yet. But on that day, oh yeah, you're going to recognize it. You'll know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. That's a promise. 
Your labors, your suffering are not in vain. That's a promise. You won't be put to shame. And therefore, wait upon the Lord with patience and with hope. We sing that song on some occasions, don't we? I will wait upon the Lord. Yeah. Verse 26, Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior. All flesh. Not just you who belong to me, but the entire world will know at that point that I am the Lord your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Wow. God will affirm His righteousness and His justice in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hence our next section, the Lord is our Redeemer. These are written up at the top of your handout, one after the other. So you get a feel for these three chapters and the thrust of them. The Lord is our Redeemer. Chapter 50, verse 2. Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? I'd save you, but my hand won't reach. No, no, (laughs) no. Or have I no power to deliver? Of course he does. God has the power. He's the only one that has the power to redeem. Verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God's words are powerful to relieve, powerful to heal, powerful to encourage, powerful to lift up. That's what he's saying here. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God because He knows how to lift up the people of God with the Word of God. We, as united to Christ, know how to lift up the people of God with the Word of God. Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, find your comfort in Him, not in other things. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who will pull out the beard. I didn't hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Christ was scourged for our transgressions, struck for our iniquities, spit upon and abused for our sake. Out of the love of God, He endured that. Out of His love for us, He endured that. All of that happened to Him in the days of His flesh. By His suffering, He became our comfort and our deliverance. The Lord helps me, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Present tense, ongoing, nonstop. But the Lord God helps me. Another reason to draw near, another reason to turn to God, for your God helps you in your hour of need. He's always there, always available. I will never leave you or forsake you. To what end? To, To help you, to be there. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Luke says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face, bracket, like flint, like stone, like resolved, right? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's Luke 9.51. He sweat drops of blood at Gethsemane, resolute to do the will of the Father in order to save his people. Not by will, but yours be done. And so we can say with the prophet Isaiah, verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will command? Who will contend with me? Who's going to give me an argument about this? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Gone, I dare you. Let him come near to me. (laughs) Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Jesus said to his accuser, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? John eight forty six. That's a great question. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? We do. We are called believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe Him. We believe in Him. We trust in Him alone. Verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord, and rely on his God. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But man, I don't know what I'm going to do with this economy, and you know, if only I had more money in the bank. (laughs) The things we do sometimes belie the faith that we profess. That is the gospel, this trusting in the name of the Lord and relying on God. That's the gospel that we proclaim. So look to the rock. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. There's that quarry I was talking about. And to the quarry from which you were dug. 
Where is that quarry? Well, look to Abraham. Look to Abraham. His faith in God is that rock. His faith in God as his rock. That's that quarry. That faith from which we come. The book of Hebrews is all about that. Are you of the faith of Abraham? And to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him. Abraham was just one guy with one wife when God called him. That I might bless him and multiply him, and he is now nations, just as God promised. Faithful to his word every step of the way. Abraham walked by faith even before he was circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of his faith, just as baptism is the sign of our faith. He was therefore the father of all those who come to Christ by faith. The promise we read here in Isaiah was made to the seed of Abraham, singular, who is Christ. That's what it says in Galatians 3.16. Not to seeds, but to the seed, to Christ. That promise was made to Christ. Being united to Christ, you are the inheritor of all those promises, all those blessings, all that salvation, all that righteousness, all that goodness, all that comfort that come through Christ. All of those are yours in Christ. That promise is accompanied with a promise of comfort in every adversity, an oasis in every desert. Do you see Christ that way? A lot of days I wake up, I've got a dry mouth. <laughs> I feel like I've been in a desert, you know. And, and, and to think of Christ as my oasis, as that place of shade, of comfort. Some of you have heard me say this before in Scripture. There is an image of a tree that is given all throughout Scripture. When you see that, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a sign of something else. Those trees in Scripture are always the symbol and the sign of God's grace. The wrath of God rains down from heaven like fire, and you stand in the shade of that tree. And you are shaded, protected from that adversity by God's grace. That's that tree. In the oasis, you have those trees to give you that shade from that sun which rains down like the wrath of God from heaven. Verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion, which is the church. He comforts all her waste places. He restores and refreshes them. That's what it's saying. And makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, that is, in the bride of Christ. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Why do we sing? Why do we sing? We sing that the joy of the Lord might be heard, might be echoed here in this room and then echoed throughout the community. That's why we sing. We sing for joy. Verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. It's all temporary. The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But, but, but God, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be abolished, shattered, or broken. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Do you see the link? He didn't come up with that imagery on his own. <laughs> it was all laid out for him in Isaiah. And what he's doing is he's pointing out to the fulfillment of that in Christ. Because he's saying there's a rock. There's a rock. There's a refuge, a haven in the midst of that devastation. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our comfort. He is our all in all. And so he says, I am he who comforts you. Verse 7. Listen to me. You who know or you who practice righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. My law is written on your heart and you are behaving accordingly. Do not fear the reproach of man. Don't be dismayed at their revilings, name-calling. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. <laughs> the day is coming when the moth is going to eat all those folks up like, like a garment. And the worm will eat them like wood. But my righteousness, repeating, echoing again, in case you missed it the first time, but my righteousness, that righteousness we have in Christ, that righteousness which comes from God, comes down from heaven above, my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. In Christ. In Christ. Verse 9, Awake! Awake! 
Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you, the Lord, who, who, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Clear as mud, right? <laughs> well, Rahab refers to Egypt. How do I know that? It's in Psalm 87.4. So the more that you know of Scripture, the more you can put the pieces together of this puzzle, the more you can understand the tapestry, the more you see those threads behind, and you know what all those threads are, you can put them together and form that picture of Christ from cover to cover in Scripture. So, Rahab refers to Egypt in Psalm 87.4. In Ezekiel 29.3, Pharaoh is described as a dragon. Oh, you're like backfeeding info from other parts of Scripture. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the fun of reading God's Word as he leaves these things all over the... You know, we, we play our little games, you know, with the, with the video games and stuff, you know, but God's Word is a marvelous game in the sense of exciting, in the sense of capturing our attention in the sense of leading us from one level to the next you know as as you begin to put those pieces together in your mind and in your heart and gain that confidence in Christ so Pharaoh's described as a dragon whose heart was pierced by the death of his firstborn referring back to that bondage back to that slavery that they had in Egypt it's going to come up again verse 10 was it not you meaning the Lord who dried up the sea the waters of the great deep who made the deeps, the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. There's the exodus, isn't it? This says a second exodus is coming. Isaiah is 700 years before Christ. The exodus was maybe 1400 B.C. So he's not referring to that particularly. He's not, that's not the historical event. He's saying there's going to come another exodus from Egypt, from bondage. So when all the captives will be set free from Babylon, yes. So that's the promise. You're going to go into Babylon. It's going to be a while. Okay, then I'm going to get you out. Yes, it's talking about Babylon, but it's also about this being set free from sin and death at the coming of Christ. He's laying the foundation that when Christ comes, they go, oh, oh, that's what it was referring to. Yes. Verse 11. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing. That pain and that suffering shall flee away. Revelation 7.17. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 12, I, I am he. I am he who comforts you. But who are you? Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? What are you, nuts? Sorry, that's an addition. Why are you afraid of man who dies or the, the son of man who is made like grass? It's going to wither in the afternoon sun. Why are you afraid of man? Stop that. You who fear man. There's only one explanation for that. Why, why, why would you fear man? Verse 13, you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You fear continually all day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. You're freaking out over people making threats against you. Stop that. Now Christ alludes to this when he says in Matthew 10, 28, don't, 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 don't. Fear those who kill the body. Don't do that. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. You want someone to fear? Fear God. Don't fear men. Don't fear circumstances. Don't fear adversity. Don't fear pain. Don't fear suffering. These are all temporary. There's a haven waiting for you. It's been prepared for you. Christ has gone ahead of you to make way for you. That when the time comes, you'll be with him. Verse 15. In case you've forgotten... I am the Lord your God. <laughs> I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. That's who I am. Aren't you impressed by my majesty? You should be. Aren't you overcome with it? Because I'm your God. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Lord of the armies of heaven. That's His name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, 
You are my people. He says that here to us this morning. You are my people. And here's that constant refrain, I am your God and you are my people. From that truth, God summons us to act accordingly. Act accordingly. Act as though you believe that. He tells us that we're asleep, that we're indifferent to his word, to his commandments, to his correction, to his promises. And therefore, verse 17, wake yourself up. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up. Get out of bed. Roll over. <laughs> uh, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Yes, I have corrected you. Yes, I have disciplined you. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Verse 19, these two things have happened. What two things? The affliction from God and having no one to guide them. Who then will console you? You experience devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who then will comfort you? And that's what's on the table for us this morning. That's the question that God is answering for us in this passage. Who then will comfort you? Now, we Christians know the answer. Jesus Christ is our comfort. Jesus Christ is our consolation. He is our guide. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is God's promise. Verse 21, Therefore, hear this. Hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk or in a stupor, who just can't... Uh, you know, wander through life like a wandering generality and just, you know, have no compass mentis. You don't really know what's going on around you. Or are drunk, but not with wine. Drunk on the world, not on the word of God. Thus says the Lord your God, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, look, see, have a look at this. I have taken from your hand, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. There's God's promise of deliverance. So what's he going to do with it? He's going to torment our tormentors. Picking up a theme that he said before. I'm going to send people against you. They're going to torment you. And then I'm going to torment them. Here then is how he's going to torment them. Verse 23. I will put into the hand of your tormentors those who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. In other words, who are trotting you underfoot, who have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. He says, I have painfully corrected you, but, but I will never disown you. I may have painfully corrected you, but I will never disown you, for you are mine. Book of Lamentations, for you are mine. And therefore, return to me. Return to me. You're mine. I'm still your God. You're still my people. Turn to me. I have not forsaken you. I will not turn my back on you. So he gives one more exhortation, one more pray, uh, promise of deliverance. What he describes next is our comfort in every age. So listen carefully. The Lord has comforted his people. 52.1 Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion, O people of God. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For no longer will the uncircumcised and the unclean come into you. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Where? At the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God Verse 4, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. <laughs> Take a vacation for 400 years. Yeah. They became enslaved there. That's what he's referring to. They liked it there. They worshipped the gods that were there. They did things the way that the Egyptians did. You sojourned there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. After Egypt, I gave you the promised land, then came the book of Judges, and every man did what was right in their own eyes, and then I sent the Assyrians against you. 
and they oppressed you for nothing. What does he mean? He means it had no effect on this stiff-necked people. It seemed that I didn't matter what kind of correction I brought to you. You insisted on sticking with your idols and sticking with your worship of foreign gods and sticking with your ways that are not my ways. Can't you hear me? Don't you know me? Don't you love me? For I love you and I've loved you with an everlasting love and that ain't going to end. Verse 5, now therefore, what have I here? What am I looking at? Declares the Lord, seeing my people are taken away for nothing. It's had no effect on them. Carted them off into Babylonian captivity. And what's the outcome going to be? Their rulers wail. Whose rulers? My people's rulers. He's not talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians or anybody else. He's talking about those who are leading the people of God. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day long, my name is despised by them. My people have been led astray. For lack of leadership, my people suffer. My name is despised as my people call upon their idols for comfort and not upon me. That's what he's saying. You've turned everywhere but to me. What good has come of their affliction? What have they learned? And so elsewhere, God tells us, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Let this affliction serve some purpose. Learn to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And He will deliver you from that bondage that you have put yourself into. That you have put yourself into. Come to know God in your affliction. Let Him comfort you in your pain. That's what God is saying here. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall come to know my name. Therefore in that day, They shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. I, God, stand before... No, not me. God is saying, I stand before you. Don't you see me? Can't you hear me? Are your eyes blinded? Are your ears stopped up? Can you not see? Can you not hear? How many sermons have we heard on this in this year? This was the comfort of the saints at Christ's appearance. At last they saw God face to face. It's our comfort now as we await His return, isn't it? God paints a picture here of the new Jerusalem, the holy city. Those are the phrases that He used. Under the new covenant in Christ's blood. We don't find that out until the New Testament. We hear it today. No, that's what He was talking about. God is coming in the flesh. God incarnate will tabernacle with His people. He will abide with them forever. He will give them a new heart and put a new spirit in them. It's Ezekiel 36, 26. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You can't see the kingdom of God if He hasn't renewed your heart, if He hasn't opened your mind to it. That's the good news. Christ drank that cup of staggering for us. God took it from our hands and He gave it to His Son. He drank that cup of God's wrath so that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy. They sing, repeat it again. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord Zion to his people. Isaiah is speaking of us proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you see in these pages. Verse 9. Break forth together into singing, (laughs) you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He is saying it before it happens as if it is a present fact. That's how trustworthy His promises are. The Lord has comforted His people because He promised you He would, and therefore it's a fact. You can take it to the bank. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Everybody can see it. They know that God has delivered His people. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's going to be visible, not hidden. No closet Christians. It's going to be visible. We are visible Christians. Verse 11. 
Depart. Depart. Go out from there. From where? Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. From the midst of Babylon, the world system as Kurt described it. Do not love the world or anything in the world. 1 John 2.15. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. In other words, you who are serving as priests in His kingdom. You holy royal priesthood. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. Nobody's causing you to run away. Stand your ground. For the Lord will go before you and God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, relax. Take it easy. God has this. Now here is fulfillment in the Great Commission. We'll close with this. The worship team will come up. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, how long? Always, even to the end of the age. Lord, make this our comfort and our joy. May you be our comfort and our joy now and forever. Let's continue in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this reading from your holy word. We thank you for these many, many glorious promises all fulfilled in Christ. We thank you that today, this day, we sing for joy because you are our God and we are your people. You have sent Christ to redeem us, to make us whole again, to deliver us from bondage. It was your promise and it's fulfilled in Christ. And we who follow Christ are so grateful to you for the grace, for the liberty that we are given in Christ. For it was all of grace There was no work that we could have done, nothing we could boast in that would have accomplished that for us. You did it all. And we praise your name for that. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.